Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. On this episode, we set the stage for President-elect Joe Biden's inaugural address. Our guests are Sarada Perry, senior speechwriter for President Barack Obama, and John McConnell, a senior speechwriter for President George W. Bush. They join me to talk about the significance of presidential inaugural addresses with examples from JFK to President Trump. Our guests this week are two presidential speechwriters, John McConnell, senior speechwriter for George W. Bush and Dick Cheney, and uh, Sarada Perry, who is a senior speechwriter for Barack Obama. And we're going to explore presidential inaugural addresses. I I, I think about Joe Biden's task, and it seems like for someone who has sought this office for many, many years, he's got the speech of his lifetime ahead of him on January 20th. How did the events of January 6th at the Capitol change the urgency and the kind of messaging that he needs to do in this speech? Let's start with John McConnell. Uh, I think the most important thing is that it has hit the events of last Wednesday have expanded the audience for President Biden's uh, inaugural address. Everybody is going to be paying attention very closely to not just what he says, but how he says it. Um, uh, Biden has been a public figure for almost 50 years. Uh, He's very familiar to Americans, especially because of his service uh, as vice president to Barack Obama for eight years. So people know him. People have a general sense of his character and his personality. And uh, I think what he needs to do on Inauguration Day is just to pro- project his best thoughts and show what kind of a person he is. And I think if you look at inaugural addresses through American history, uh, the best ones, the most effective ones, are, are the ones in which the new president points forward and really talks about uh, his agenda, not necessarily in great specificity because you don't have the time to do that and it's more of a thematic speech but but point clearly and confidently forward and uh, as I say I don't know how much uh, recent events or, or current headlines really need to be talked about in an inaugural address as opposed to simply the great principles and beliefs that the incoming president uh, has and uh, wants to uh, 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 put at the service of his new administration. Sarah DePerry? Yeah, I would agree with John. And I think, you know, this is a moment where, as John said, it's not necessarily that he has to articulate a series of, of policies, um, but th- he almost is going to offer not just sort of a vision of where he wants to take America, but a sensibility. You know, speeches have, especially inaugural addresses, have a kind of feel, a kind of a sense of the the almost ambiance of, of where the new president plans to take the country. So if you think about JFK's inaugural, there was a feeling of freshness, of newness, of turning the page on an older generation into and bringing in the new one. Um, and, and so you, you get that sense from inaugurals. And so this is going to be an opportunity for, for President-elect Biden to offer what he th- what he thinks the tone of this moment ought to be. Um, and it's it's not a job I envy given the, the recent events. And so while he may not speak about them specifically, the, his, his sort of affirmative vision of the America he plans to govern almost implicitly will be a response to, to current events. As presidential speechwriters are inherently students of history, uh, and Joe Biden will be taking the oath dealing with so many issues, an angry and divided electorate, a possible impeachment process of his predecessor, a pandemic, an economic crisis. Can either of you think of any historical parallels for this many issues facing an incoming president? Well, uh it's, it's really interesting when you look uh, across American history, uh, number one, how many times the nation has been closely divided in a presidential election. It, it is amazing. I mean, uh, 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 it, not just in, in modern times, uh, Bush v. Gore, Kennedy and Nixon, Ken- Nixon and Humphrey, Kennedy and Nixon separated by 100,000 votes uh, nationwide, I think. Uh, 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 Wilson running for re-election in 1916, and then a series of elections after the Civil War where it was really, really on the knife's edge. Uh, that's number one. And number two, uh, there have been a, a, a pretty large number of, of presidents coming in at moments of crisis. I mean, you think right away of Franklin D. Roosevelt uh, at the height of the Great Depression. 
uh, Ronald Reagan came in uh, at a moment of, of, of real economic, uh, uh, not, not calamity, but, but uh, great, great concern in the country. And I, I, I you know, there, there, are just, there are just many instances of this. Uh, Biden, of course, has a series of, of crises and challenges of his own. Uh, but, you know, you go back through history and there's just many instances of presidents having to deal with these things. And so I again back, go back to the point that if he's confident and pointing forward and speaks about principles and maybe even a little bit about American history, as, as many presidents have done in his inaugural address, he'll set just the right tone uh, for his administration going forward. Senator Perry, uh, John McConnell mentioned that the audiences will be much larger for incoming President Biden for, for this speech. But I'm wondering, what are the key audiences that this and any inaugural address really aim toward? Well, you know, an inaugural address is not, it's no longer a campaign speech, right? I mean, it is, it is an official, it is the president's first official address. Um, you know, that's, it's not not a coronation, but it is it is the the moment when a president is becoming the president of all Americans. He's no longer just speaking to Democrats, and he's no longer speaking against Republicans. And so, in a way, um, unlike uh, uh, many other speeches, um, this speech is, you know, directed towards the the, the American people, but also actually the world. Um, and I, you're in a way asking me to minimize the audience, but actually, I would argue that this speech has a global audience because the world is looking for what this new leader will bring, what will a new President Biden and his administration bring. And, and you know, their fortunes rest on that too. And so I think for any speech, you wanna consider what sort of the emotional heart center is. Um, and I think in this moment when our country is so divided, he needs to come back to those first principles, as John said, and you know, speak about the values that bind us while being extremely clear-eyed about the things that at the moment are um, are causing such division. But I think he he does need to be mindful of of frankly the vastness of the audience. That doesn't mean that he's offering different messages to those audiences. I think that if he um, sort of speaks about that affirmative vision that he has, it will reach all audiences. And what is unique about Joe Biden, I think, among a lot of politicians, is that what you see is what you get. He is. He is himself. He has been the same person um, that has been in public life for for as long as he's been in public life, and so I think we will we will see that essence again um, on this on this biggest stage of his life. Uh, John McConnell, how important is speaking to history when you're crafting an inaugural address? Well, uh, you know, um, I used to get that question when I was writing uh, speeches for President Bush, and um, I always tried to to uh, change the subject because if you're thinking about history in writing a speech, it doesn't help in the process. Um, you really need to keep focused on, on, on the project at hand and on, on, uh, on, on putting your best thoughts down and uh, getting, the, getting the president's voice. Um, history, is, you know, people look back at inaugural addresses um, uh, and, you know, they, 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 they set the stage uh, in, in a certain sense for administrations. But for most presidents, uh, their most significant speech was not their inaugural address. Uh, people go back to them, but I, I can't think of many presidents uh, uh, of whom the typical American would say, boy, that inaugural address, that was, that was uh, the thing I remember about him. There's just, there's very few of them. Um, so it's, it's, it's a very important speech, but uh, it's part of a, a narrative arc of of of, of that president, uh, uh, and it it uh, you know Joe Biden will say things that are much more newsworthy uh, within a few days of being inaugurated. Uh, but that speech, I, I think, uh, it just needs to be uh, forward-looking, uh, conversational in tone. I don't think that people are looking for in in the times we live in uh, high oratory. They're just looking for, um, uh, uh, I think right now especially, a really good sense of the man. And, 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 and uh, that's why uh, uh, Sarada is right about the world watching as well. People are just very curious uh, about, uh, about this man who they're familiar with, 
uh, but have never seen in this role. Well, Sarah DePerry, following up on John McConnell's point, uh, if Lincoln's second inaugural is considered the greatest of all times, uh, are there any other gold standard presidential inaugural speeches that you as speechwriters might go back and study if you were given this task? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, I, I think it's actually, to John's point, it's actually worth going back and reading as many of them as one can if you're preparing this address or just if you're interested in, in history in general, because while few of them stand out in sort of together, when you read them, they offer a snapshot um, or really a pastiche of American history. You know, you get a sense of what these leaders were dealing with sort of in context. Um, and so they're, they're worth reviewing. Um you know, I think FDR's first inaugural was was quite remarkable. And again, coming in a time of crisis, um, coming out of the Hoover administration and at a moment when the American people were truly in crisis, you know, uh, lines, uh, hunger lines and, and people had lost their jobs and the banks were going under. And, and it was a really uh, horrible time for the American people. And for so long, they had been feeling as though there was nothing that could be done about it. And so, again, not even talking specifically about programs, what what FDR did there was inject a sense of possibility, um, not sort of, you know, wide-eyed, naive possibility, but a sense of the people having agency again. And that was a, a, a huge sort of tone shift um, from, from the Hoover administration. So the, I think that is sort of one of your gold standards. Obviously, JFK's inaugural is, is widely considered to be um, a particularly beautiful one and, again, had a, had a particular tone about it. Um, and, you know, when Ted Sorensen, his, his longtime speechwriter and, and thought partner, uh, wrote in his biography of Kennedy sort of what the, the process was like, and they had been collecting you know, fragments of ideas and, and phrases. And he had had to dip into that in order to write um, President Kennedy's farewell speech to Massachusetts when he left the Senate and uh, hadn't wanted to. But then when he then and then President Kennedy asked him to read previous inaugurals and found that he found that most of them were just not all that great. Um, but the one thing he noted was that uh, they were also very long. And so his goal was to make President Kennedy's as short as possible. And it ended up being the shortest since since Teddy Roosevelt's. Um, but again, I think he seized it as an opportunity to offer an affirmative vision of what America could be. You know, we're, we're turning away from sort of what we have been going through. You know, we're, we're no, post-war generation. Now we're sort of seizing upon a community and we're, we're trying to sort of inject this idea, not just of a community of, of our country, but a community of nations and, and uh, you know, introducing this idea of what citizenship really is. So I think for, for a bunch of reasons, um, the Kennedy inaugural is, is considered a gold standard. Um, and, and President Obama in his recent memoir wrote, wrote about his own experience with his first inaugural and, and you know, had Sorensen was kind enough to speak to the speechwriters and, and President Obama himself says you know, his first inaugural was was no Kennedy inaugural, um, but he felt like it was it, it reflected his you know honest conviction about what America ought to be. We've uh, dipped into our video archives to pull some examples of presidential speeches as we continue our conversation. But we're going to start with Joe Biden. We're going to play a little clip from his election night speech uh, in Wilmington. And I'd like to have both of you offer your professional opinions of his style, his rhetorical style, as you uh, listen to this clip. I pledge to be a president who seeks not to divide, but unify, who, who doesn't see red states and blue states, only sees the United States, and work with all my heart, with the confidence of the whole people, to win the confidence of all of you. And for that is what America, I believe, is about. It's about people. And that's what our administration will be all about. I sought this office to restore the soul of America, to rebuild the backbone of this nation, the middle class, and to make America respected around the world again. And to unite us here at home. It's the honor of my lifetime that so many millions of Americans have voted for that vision. Uh, let's start with Sarada. I mean, I think it was sort of quintessential Biden in a way. Um, you know, he he truly believes that he can bring people together, and I don't think he's wrong about that. Um, he has long been somebody who is moderate in temperament and moderate in his in his policies, um, and is somebody who's known for working across the aisle. Um, and his whole theme throughout the campaign was restoring the soul of America. And <clears throat> I think in 
in sort of speaking to that at that moment and offering a unifying message of, you know, I'm, I'm going to do my very best to, to bring everybody together. He was laying sort of the groundwork. He was laying, he was actually laying a stake in the ground, frankly, and saying, now it's going to be on everybody else to sort of join that vision and to come along um, and to be willing to be open to, to, um, repairing our divide. Um, and so I think it was a pretty clear statement of where he wants to go. A very, very good tone. Uh, and if that's going to be the tone of his inaugural address, it will be a success. Uh, and the most important thing is, after a presidential election, especially if you win the election, is to stop campaigning. And if, if, if Biden just remembers that in his inaugural address, he'll be fine. Um, <clears throat> when I was... Uh, Uh, Boy, I was at the inauguration of Ronald Reagan, and I was a big Reagan fan, admired him uh, 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 as far back as I could remember, and now he was president of the United States, and I was going to hear him speak as president, and I was so excited because uh, I thought I was going to hear something entirely different from what I had heard listening to Ronald Reagan's speeches. And in my immaturity, I remember being a little bit disappointed because it sounded just like he did before he was president. He spoke about the same ideas, the same themes. It wasn't a campaign speech. He wasn't contrasting with anyone else. He wasn't attacking anyone or, or, or uh, going down that road. But it was just the same man. And of course, now I look back over over the years and Reagan's inaugural address uh, was one of the best, uh, uh, consistent uh, with the man's entire career, consistent with his character. And if I were Joe Biden right now, that would be the most important thing to me. Uh, that is, not to, be, not to go up there and sound different uh, 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 from the Joe Biden of the past, but to be the best uh, Joe Biden. And um, uh, so that's what we'll be waiting to see. Uh, Sarada Perry, uh, we've learned from press reports that the incoming White House Director of Speechwriting is Vinay Reddy, who was Chief Speechwriter for then Vice President Biden during the second Obama term. Sarada Perry, do you know him? Yes. Do you know how? Is very good. Yeah, he's a very good friend of mine. Do you know how he works with the Vice President, the incoming um, President? Yeah, they have they have quite a, a, a remarkable sort of partnership. Um, they they've worked together for a long time, as you said. When I was um, Vice President Biden's chief speechwriter in the White House. And, you know, they he knows him sort of uh, has spent a lot of time with him personally, which is, I think, one of the best ways to develop a writing relationship. Um, and so, you know, they they work together on ideas, they work through drafts together. Um, and, you know, there are other speechwriters in the team that that Benai has worked with as well. And that and that Biden has worked with um, longtime advisors like Mike Donilon are always involved. Um, but Vinay is kind of, I think he he actually in a way shares some of Biden's best qualities. He is a deeply empathetic person. You know, he's a beautiful writer and a brilliant guy, but also somebody who just sort of operates with that, with the same empathy that that Biden does. And so I think because they share that sensibility, they have a, a real sort of um, connection in terms of their values and how they see the world and how they see worth in every single person. Um, I think you'll see that come out um, in not just the inaugural, but but in all that's to come in terms of the, the administration and the White House, the speech writing that will come out of the White House. We're going to go back in history and we're going to start with the JFK inaugural, although uh, Sarada, you already talked a bit about that and the relationship with Ted Sorensen. But of course, this is in the modern age, one of the iconic speeches, the ask not speech. Let's listen to a little bit of this. In the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. I do not believe that any of us would exchange places with any other people or any other generation. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. 
So John McConnell, he, he took office in the height of the Cold War. Uh, and while we think of that ask not phrase as uh, and calling us to action for our own country, in fact, most of the speech was about foreign policy issues. What are your observations about the speech? Well, uh, my general observation, of course, is uh, that is the work of a highly literate, educated man uh, with, a, with a natural sense of the English language that was basically unmatched in his generation of politicians. Ted Sorensen was a, a, a beautiful writer uh, and a modest man, uh, always gave credit to the president himself. And, and, um, and we know from the documents and from some of the books that have been written about uh, the speech that it really was uh, uh, John F. Kennedy's best in that speech. Uh, uh, the co- collaboration with Sorensen was very important. But I think it was... Uh, I think Kennedy edited the speech something like 30 times while delivering it, uh, alterations from the text. He was just a person with a natural sense of how uh, words sounded, uh, um, you know, what, 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 the, what the cadence should be, what, uh, what the, uh, 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 the choice of words should be, and he could make snap decisions in delivery. And it all just came together uh, in, a, in, a, in a, a beautiful piece of work that uh, uh, anyone who's worked on a presidential inaugural address can tell you is a very, very hard to do. As you say, it was mostly about foreign policy and about America's place in the world. Uh, Harris Wofford, uh, the, the late senator from Pennsylvania, uh, had a small role in that speech. There was a line where President Kennedy talked about uh, the human rights that America seeks to advance around the world. And the sentence was changed to include the words "at home," uh, and so that was and that was Harris Wofford's influence, um, and he was simply uh, hoping, <coughs> in doing that, uh, to have the inaugural address uh, make a reference to uh, civil rights here in the United States. Senator Perry, I'm going to move on to 1969 and the first Nixon administration to set the stage. Uh, and perhaps some parallels to today, massive protests going into it over Vietnam, both conventions disrupted with violent protests. Um, He was the only president in the 20th century to be defeated and then come back to win as he took the oath. Um, He said in his memoirs the major theme of his speech was going to be peace. Protesters lined Pennsylvania Avenue. Rocks were thrown at the presidential limo as he moved uh, between the White House and Capitol Hill. Eighty-one people arrested, 12 injured, including one policeman. So that's the background for what we're going to hear next from January 20th, 1969, first Nixon inaugural. When we listen to the better angels of our nature, we find that they celebrate the simple things, the basic things such as goodness, decency, love, kindness. Greatness comes in simple trappings. The simple things are the ones most needed today if we are to surmount what divides us and cement what unites us. To lower our voices would be a simple thing. In these difficult years, America has suffered from a fever of words, from inflated rhetoric that promises more than it can deliver, from angry rhetoric that fans discontents into hatreds, from bombastic rhetoric that postures instead of persuading. We cannot learn from one another until we stop shouting at one another until we speak quietly enough so that our words can be heard as well as our voices. Sarah DePerry, what did you hear there? You know, this is, this is a fascinating speech. Um, as you said, a, he's delivering it at this moment of incredible crisis. Um, and when people aren't just yelling for the sake of yelling, they are yelling because they have genuine grievances. You know, followed 1968, the death of two heroes and RFK and MLK, civil rights unrest, the anti-war movement, obviously. Um, it, was, it was a moment where people, people had real grievances and were worried about the state of the country. And it, it, it's sort of, you might think that the right thing to say at that moment is to talk about lowering our voices, but it felt a little empty. It wasn't really addressing 
the very real grievances that people had um, or offering a way forward. Um, you know, his speech doesn't have any specific proposals and that's that's typical of an inaugural, but he also wasn't necessarily offering sort of a vision of where we wanted to go, which, you know, back to John's earlier point is kind of the central point of, a, of an inaugural to paint a picture of, of the vision of the future. And he didn't do that. It was sort of a bland call for unity. It actually reminds me a little bit of, of some of what we hear today with, you know, calls for civility. But, you know, civility is often a way for those in power to silence those without power. And I feel like Nixon didn't quite strike the right, right. Um, the, the words he was saying weren't really meeting the moment, although the sentiment of wanting to lower the temperature was understandable and admirable. But that wasn't addressing the real issue, I think. Um, you know, he, he talks, I remember there's a line, you know, to a crisis of the spirit. We need an answer of the spirit. And that kind of sounds like a pretty line, but it doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't attach itself to anything. Um, but that but that speech, you know, it, it was it was a it was a, an unusual for, for a bunch of reasons. Um, you know, one of the, the funny things about that about that moment is that Nixon was actually sworn in by Chief Justice Earl Warren, who had been his longtime political rival from California. You know, so the whole thing was sort of a just a discordant moment, I think. John. Um, I don't know uh, whether the speech was judged a success. I probably was just because inaugural addresses tend to be uh, well-received. I'll just note that at the beginning, uh, Nixon talked about the better angels of our nature, which, of course, is a conscious echo of uh, President Lincoln's uh, first inaugural address, the closing passage of President Lincoln's first inaugural address. Um, uh, And that term, better angels, we've heard from Biden and we may hear again on Inauguration Day. As we move on through history, President Nixon's section speech in 1973, which we're not going to show a clip from, but it's interesting uh, in reading about it, he used the word peace 19 times in that speech, more than any other presidential reference. In fact, if you combine several uh, inaugural speeches together, uh, uh, he uses it more than that. What does that suggest to you in terms of where he thought the country needed to be? Well, uh, Nixon, uh, uh, in his first inaugural address, I think, is where he said the greatest title that history can bestow is the title of peacemaker. It was very much on his mind. And that actually is his, uh, uh, the epitaph on his tombstone. Interesting. Um, we're going to move on to Ronald Reagan's first. And John McConnell, you talked about this being the first uh, inaugural address that you heard in person, 1981. Um, it set the stage for us rather than me doing it. What was the country going uh, through as he was beginning to take the oath of office? Well, actually, the first one I heard in person was Carter in 77 when I was a little boy. And that was on the east front of the Capitol. And then four years later, as Carter was leaving uh, and Ronald Reagan was coming in, the inauguration, of course, had been moved to the west front of the Capitol for the first time. Reagan has given credit for that, but uh, in truth, that was uh, done by Congress. And uh, Carter's second inauguration, had he been reelected, would have been on the west front of the Capitol. I just remember at it as, it, as a very uh, unusual day, just having having seen the Carter uh, event four years before, and then having re- read about other inaugurations, it's January 20th. It tends to be mighty cold uh, <clears throat> uh, in the randomly you know, chosen January 20th going through the years. Ronald Reagan's inauguration day, I think it was 55, it, I know it was 55 or 60 degrees. People were bundled up, but it was, it was just a beautiful, beautiful day. A little bit overcast, and, um, but got sunny around new time. And um, uh, uh, it was also a formal event. Uh, President Reagan was dressed in morning clothes, and, uh, and, and that was the dress code. So everybody on the platform, including the outgoing president and vice president, were all dressed in, in formal attire. Uh, and I think the only other inauguration to have a formal dress code in modern times was, was John F. Kennedy's. So it was a very, I just remember it as a very polished event, beautiful day, um, uh, and uh, the country was, uh, uh, it just had, we'd gone through a divisive election. There had been three candidates for president. Uh, third party candidate, I think, got 5% of the vote. Reagan ended up winning 44 states. Uh, president Carter carried only six. Um, but Carter, four years before, in his inaugural address, had begun his remarks by thanking President Ford for all he had done 
to heal the nation. Ronald Reagan, at the beginning of his inaugural address, thanked Jimmy Carter for his assistance in the transition. And from then on, inaugural addresses have had explicit thanks to the outgoing president. Ronald Reagan's uh, chief speechwriter for this, Ken Kashigian, let's listen to about a minute and 14 of January 20th, 1981, Ronald Reagan's first inaugural. The economic ills we suffer have come upon us over several decades. They will not go away in days, weeks, or months, but they will go away. They will go away because we, as Americans, have the capacity now, as we've had in the past, to do whatever needs to be done to preserve this last and greatest bastion of freedom. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. It's my intention to curb the size and influence of the federal establishment and to demand recognition of the distinction between the powers granted to the federal government and those reserved to the states or to the people. All of us, all of us need to be reminded that the federal government did not create the states. The states created the federal government. Sarah DePerry, Ronald Reagan, ushering in the new federalism era. Uh, what did you hear there? You know, the folks involved in the in the speeches preparations said that it would sort of set a tone rather than an agenda. And I think he did do that, although in in the tone of sort of calling for you know the end of big government, uh, did set an agenda. Um, and you know, in in truth, the the rhetoric of the speech is you know sort of Reagan at his finest. Um, but what you hear is, is sort of ironically the person who's taking over the government, demonizing the government, which I suppose is what he had done throughout the campaign and what he did in his eight years in office. But it was it was sort of quintessential Reagan in that sense. Um, as, as John said earlier, he didn't deviate um, from anything really that he had said in the campaign. Um, and he didn't offer anything new from that perspective either. Uh, not that he had to, but the vision that he was putting forward was almost entirely about um, uh, you know, the reducing the, the the strength and power of the federal government, um, and so and that was that was not new from what he had been doing. Uh, the um, the another interesting thing about the Reagan inaugural address is that, unlike a lot of other inaugural addresses, Reagan really made an argument in that speech, and he's often quoted just uh, uh, in the abstract. You hear people say Reagan was the one who said governments not the solution, government's the problem. And we just heard that line from the speech. But what he said in the speech was, in this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problems. And he was making an argument, which was that A, government had shown signs of growing beyond the consent of the governed, and B, that despite the size and strength and scope of the government, it still had not, uh, it, it still exceeded uh, the uh, tax revenues of the uh, uh, of the government, and and therefore um, you had deficits, you had inflation, uh, all of these problems that he talked about. So when he said government is not the solution, he was saying government has done these things, and therefore it is the problem. Susan, one more interesting thought about this speech that, or one interesting thing about the speech is that it ended up having resonance in terms of, you know, as John said, making an argument um, for uh, a philosophy, really, of how government ought to work. And I, I think it was in this inaugural um, where he made the comparison between, um, you know, a family staying within its budget and the federal government staying within its budget. And, and that has resonated um, in terms of folks who, people who believe in that argument of, of economic theory, that a federal government ought to manage its budget the way a family does. Um, whether or not economists agree with that, that has stayed, has staying power in terms of being a rhetorical argument um, for, uh, for, uh, for Reagan's philosophy of government. 
Next, uh, we'll look at 1993, the first inaugural of Bill Clinton, uh, the generational change to the first baby boomer president. And uh, his theme was American Renewal. This is from January 20th, 1993, first Clinton inaugural, about a minute and 15. Our democracy must be not only the envy of the world, but the engine of our own renewal. There is nothing wrong with America that cannot be cured by what is right with America. And so today we pledge an end to the era of deadlock and drift, and a new season of American renewal has begun. To renew America, we must be bold. We must do what no generation has had to do before. We must invest more in our own people, in their jobs, and in their future, and at the same time, cut our massive debt. And we must do so in a world in which we must compete for every opportunity. It will not be easy. It will require sacrifice. But it can be done, and done fairly, not choosing sacrifice for its own sake, but for our own sake. Uh, let's start with John this time. What did, what did you hear in that speech uh, at versus what the Clinton presidency was like? Well, uh, it, it, it pretty much fits with how his presidency turned out in, in terms of of um, the economic successes. It, it It's interesting in that uh, two years later, uh, he was facing uh, a Republican House and a Republican Senate uh, that had uh, uh, run on a, a set platform, uh, um, nation, made a congressional midterm election, a nationwide election. And Clinton had to contend with that Republican Congress for the next uh, six years and, uh, and, and, and had a, in, in economic terms, a, a successful presidency, and maybe that's uh, the divided government was uh, part of the part of the reason for that. And ultimately, of course, impeachment. Sarah to Perry, well, yes. uh, your thoughts about what you heard? The era of dead of deadlock is over, and also his concern about the the debt. It's interesting. As John said, it certainly wasn't over. Um, and a couple of years later, it would it would only get more entrenched. And one might argue that the, the revolution of, of 1994, led by, by Gingrich, um, hearkened to sort of new era of rancorous partisanship that we're still um, living with. Um, and so uh, it, it wasn't prescient in that way, um, although, of course, he did oversee, was able to oversee a, a strong economy. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, by that point, Democrats had taken on the same language of debt that that had started earlier um, in Reagan's term. And this was also the, the a lot of what, of what Clinton faced in terms of criticism from the left wing of his own party, um, that he was too moderate, that he was thinking too much about debt, that he pursued policies like welfare reform, that progressives were vehement against. Um, and so you, you start to see seeds of what this, what his uh, administration will look like, what his White House will look like in terms of trying to appeal to all sides of the party. Um, and, you know, I will say, too, that what's striking about the language is his use of renewal. I think he even starts the speech talking about how, you know, it's a cold winter day, but it, but we're, that we're starting to see the springs, the renewal of spring. And, you know, it, it was a, in a way that was really a, a tone, um, a commentary on, uh, about the tone of the moment. Um, he offered a really beautiful tribute to President George H.W. Bush, who, of course, you know, gave a lifetime of service to the country. And he also was turning the page to a new generation, his own generation. Um, and, uh, you know, the first baby boomer president. And, you know, you see it even more uh, later in, in 1997. Um, in a second inaugural address, which was the first one I attended in person, I was a senior in high school, and um, and you're struck by the moment that he is speaking, um, you know, of course, throughout his presidency, but especially at that second inaugural, where, you know, we've got the internet is getting bigger, um, you know, younger generation coming up more aware of technology and its role, and President Clinton trying to play, figure out what role America has in sort of leading this revolution, you know, building the bridge to the 21st century became his, his catchphrase. And so he really did 
um, take office and lead in a time that was pivotal, um, not just for America, but for the world in terms of where we were going um, heading into a new century. And give him credit for setting that right tone uh, and talking about uh, the importance of or or his aspiration of putting an era of deadlock and division behind us. Who knows what who knows what he whether he thought the chances of that were uh, were were great or small, but at least uh, at least we have to credit him for wanting to get past it. So we're going to go next to the new millennium, George W. Bush, 20 years ago. Hard to believe that it was 20 years already. Uh, but here he is on January uh, 1st of 20, January 20th of 20, 2001. And uh, I want to play this clip, and then I'm going to ask if our director can then move right into his second inaugural. Because, of course, the first one took place before anyone had conceived of 9-11. And I want to have, have you compare the tones in the two speeches just four years apart. So let's listen to George W. Bush's first inaugural, and then we'll take a break and come back and listen to his second inaugural. The peaceful transfer of authority is rare in history, yet common in our country. With a simple oath, we affirm old traditions and make new beginnings. As I began, I thank President Clinton for his service to our nation. And I thank Vice President Gore for a contest conducted with spirit and ended with grace. The ambitions of some Americans are limited by failing schools and hidden prejudice and the circumstances of their birth. And sometimes our differences run so deep, it seems we share a continent, but not a country. We do not accept this, and we will not allow it. Our unity, our union, is the serious work of leaders and citizens and every generation. And this is my solemn pledge. I will work to build a single nation of justice and opportunity. That was George W. Bush's first inaugural address, and now we'll listen to a portion of his second inaugural address. There is only one force of history that can break the reign of hatred and resentment and expose the pretensions of tyrants and reward the hopes of the decent and tolerant, and that is the force of human freedom. We are led by events and common sense to one conclusion. The survival of liberty in our land increasingly depends on the success of liberty in other lands. The best hope for peace in our world is the expansion of freedom in all the world. John, um, uh, let's start with you. Were you involved in either of these speeches? Uh, the second inaugural address, yes, I, I worked with my colleague Mike Gerson, uh, although I have to say that Mike was the, uh, the real intellectual driver of that speech, and he's the one who had spent the most time with the president talking about it. But we did spend a week or so together on the drafting. The first inaugural address, I did not. It was uh, Mike and uh, our colleague Matthew Scully. Our world had changed a lot in that four years. How, how do we hear that in the two, the tones in the two, two speeches? Well, um, it's been a while since I listened to either one of them, but uh, I, I remember imp- just impressionistically, my memory is that they both sounded a lot like him because in each case, he spent so much time working on the speech. Uh, that was, that was uh, uh, true for all the years I worked for him. Uh, speeches were very important to him, and he wanted to bond with uh, the speech by the time he got up and delivered it. He wanted it to uh, uh, be the representation of his best thoughts. He thought every speech was important. Uh, and so in looking back and listening to those inaugural addresses, uh, it, it, it really sounds like him because it is him, uh, a, a good-hearted man, a man uh, clear in his purposes and eager to explain them uh, to uh, the audience. 
Sarah DePerry, uh, William Sapphire reported that, uh, jo- that George W. Bush told Michael Gerson, I want my second inaugural to be the freedom speech. And in fact, he used the word freedom 27 times in that speech. What's your reaction? Hmm. Um, well, given where we were at, at that point, um, you know, the, at that point we were knee deep in the Iraq war, um, obviously after 9-11, it makes sense. Freedom at that moment, if, if we go back in time, had sort of an outsized, um, almost mythic quality to it, um, not always tethered to meaning for people, but um, it, it very much was in the air um, and um, became in, in some some corners a source of derision um, because, you know, whose freedom were we fighting for and um, and what, what were we doing um, in, in terms of the Iraq war? Um, but I think that after 9-11, that tone of speaking for freedom um, from terrorism here, um, but also for democracy abroad, was really important um, for for President Bush. And I, you know, I also wanted to say that what struck me in in going, I hadn't gone like John, I hadn't gone back and, and listened or read to to that those inaugurals in a long time. But going back to that first one, you know, it of course before 9-11, um, you know, it's first of all, it's a beautifully written speech. Um, and parts of it sound like so different from what you might hear today. Um, you know, there's a, a line where he says, it's the American story, a story of flawed and fallible people united across the generations by grand and enduring ideals. I mean, today, I don't know if you would hear a Republican say that the American story is a story of flawed and fallible people. You know, there is a an argument being had today, um, not just b- between historians, but between politicians about you know, what is the American story and is it is it unpatriotic to look back and question some of the choices that were made and to, um, you know, call out our flaws. And so it, it is it struck me that um, that that President Bush um, did sort of put that in in a really elegant way in his first inaugural. So we move on to the Barack Obama presidency. And uh, Sarada, we're going to turn to you for some background on how those speeches were crafted. What can you tell us about them? So I was not involved in, in crafting either of them, um, but it, my understanding is that the first speech, um, President Obama worked with his longtime chief speechwriter, John Favreau, and, and John has said that it was one of the hardest speeches um, he, he worked on. He said the same about the second inaugural. Um, and, you know, President Obama has said that that first inaugural happened um, it was sort of a whirlwind of a time. You know, he had obviously just come off of the campaign, but we were in the middle. Um, he, he immediately inherited this this um, financial crisis. And, you know, the transition, as, as John will know better than anyone, was basically just a series of meetings about how bad things were. Um, so it was um, a, a really challenging time. And, um, you know, the speechwriters had actually met with, with Ted Sorensen to get his advice. And he basically said, whenever we had a big speech to write, we just said, Let's make sure this one hits the history books. Um, and and I don't know if that was for inspiration or, or fear, but but um, you know, for President Obama, he just wanted it, I think, to be a more sober tone um, and less maybe lofty and rhetorical than what people had heard in the campaign and what people expected because the moment called for that. You know, um, yeah, as we talked about earlier, inaugurations are the first official speech as president. You're not campaigning anymore. And he was coming into a very serious situation um, and had worked with President Bush throughout the transition to sort of, you know, be ready to to take take on the, the role of governing. Um, you know, that old adage, you you campaign in poetry, but you govern in prose. And this this speech was prose. There was this interesting little paragraph from The Guardian about uh, John Favreau and, and his relationship with the president in writing this. The inaugural speech has shuttled between uh, the two of them four or five times following an initial hour-long meeting in which the president-elect spoke about his vision for the address, and Favreau took notes on his computer. He then went away and spent weeks on research. His team interviewed historians and speechwriters, studied periods of crisis, and listened to past inaugural orations. And when ready, he took up residence in a Starbucks in Washington and wrote the first draft. Uh, that process probably sounds familiar to both of you as presidential speechwriters. We're going <laughs> to listen to Barack Obama's first inaugural address. And then, John, when we come back, let's hear what you have to say about it. That we are in the midst of crisis is now well understood. Our nation is at war against a far-reaching network of violence and hatred. Our economy is badly weakened, a consequence of greed and irresponsibility on the part of some, but also our collective failure to make hard choices and prepare the nation for a new age. Homes have been lost 
jobs shed, businesses shutter, our health care is too costly, our schools fail too many, and each day brings further evidence that the ways we use energy strengthen our adversaries and threaten our planet. These are the indicators of crisis, subject to data and statistics. Less measurable, but no less profound, is a sapping of confidence across our land. A nagging fear that America's decline is inevitable, that the next generation must lower its sights. Today, I say to you that the challenges we face are real. They are serious and they are many. They will not be met easily or in a short span of time. But know this, America, they will be met. John? Isn't that interesting? Uh, There's a line in the Reagan address where he talks about our problems not going away in days, weeks, or months, but they will go away. And Obama says something very similar to that. Uh, And um, that's a lesson for inaugural addresses. Uh, The country likes hearing a president, especially an incoming president in whom they've invested their confidence, say something like that. We can get through this. Whatever we're facing, we can get through it. I just want to add that I've been reading President Obama's book. I don't remember knowing this at the time. I I was on the White House staff uh, uh, until until the morning of the inauguration, and I, I wouldn't have known this, but I don't remember reading about it since until I read Obama's book. He was briefed the night before and told that there was uh, a credible threat uh, of a terrorist attack at the inauguration. And so he had in his jacket pocket a set of instructions to read to the audience to tell them how to get away um, and how to, uh, how to get away from the scene uh, and, and, and go on to safety. I'd never heard that story. and uh, uh, It's pretty jarring when you think about it. And as the fences are going up right across the street from us as we talk right now, again, reminiscent of the times that we're going through as uh, Joe Biden takes his inaugural, uh, makes his inaugural address. We have uh, about eight minutes left. I have time to do uh, President Obama's second inaugural, which is, this clip is about a minute long. Let's listen to how his themes changed in his second oath of office. We must be a source of hope to the poor, the sick, the marginalized, the victims of prejudice, not out of mere charity, but because peace in our time requires the constant advance of those principles that our common creed describes, tolerance and opportunity, human dignity and justice. For our journey is not complete until our wives, our mothers and daughters can earn a living equal to their efforts. Our journey is not complete until our gay brothers and sisters are treated like anyone else under the law. For if we are truly created equal, then surely the love we commit to one another must be equal as well. Our journey is not complete until no citizen is forced to wait for hours to exercise the right to vote. Our journey is not complete until we find a better way to welcome the striving, hopeful immigrants who still see America as a land of opportunity. Senator Perry, we hear policy initiatives in the second inaugural address. We do, and and all of them um, have a a tone of of sort of full-throated progressivism, right? I mean, this is somebody who just won re-election, um, you know, and it was it was always obviously a historic moment when President Obama won the first time. But, you know, I've heard um, longtime uh, people who have worked with, with President Obama say, you know, in a way that could have been a fluke, but for him to be reelected with, had so much meaning. Um, and so not only did it have sort of emotional and symbolic resonance, but it also meant this was somebody who was never going to run for office again. And he, you know, knowing that he was going to have a, a Congress that would oppose him at this point, um, he was in a position to sort of say, uh, you know, I'm going to I'm going to push for the progressive 
legislation that I want. Um, and it was in this speech that he actually he had used the phrase earlier, but when he he used the the phrase from uh, Seneca Falls to Selma to Stonewall, and he had used that in uh, a commencement that he had given at Barnard University in 2012. But they brought it back for this speech because it had sort of gotten lost, and it has since kind of taken on its own resonance. You know, to tie Stonewall uh, to these other two. Um, civil rights moments of consequence for our country was sort of a watershed moment in, in terms of the rhetoric around rights for the LGBT, LGBTQ community. And so um, it was it was a, you know, a pretty forward thinking speech and a, and a forward leaning speech and certainly painting a picture of a president who intends to push for big ideas. Don McConnell, uh, we have about five minutes left, and I do want to get President Trump's 2017 speech in here, written uh, with the help of Stephen Miller and Steve Bannon. This is uh, about another minute and 15 clip. Let's listen. Mothers and children trapped in poverty in our inner cities, rusted out factories scattered like tombstones across the landscape of our nation, an education system flush with cash, but which leaves our young and beautiful students deprived of all knowledge. And the crime and the gangs and the drugs that have stolen too many lives and robbed our country of so much unrealized potential. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. We assembled here today are issuing a new decree to be heard in every city, in every foreign capital, and in every hall of power. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. John McConnell. Well, uh, that was that was uh, a vintage Donald Trump. I just as a speechwriter, um, I was always hesitant, and I think, uh, and I, I can tell you, uh, my bosses, George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, Dan Quayle, before that, um, uh, uh, we, there was always a sensitivity to saying something um, completely categorical, such as. This stops right here, right now. Uh, is that right? Is this is this really true that something stops here and now? Uh, I think sometimes in politics uh, uh, there can be over over promising and overstating, uh, and sometimes in inaugural dresses. And there are, there are there are other examples of that. Sarah Do Perry, what are your thoughts in listening to that speech from four years ago? Um, actually, it's funny, I had a similar reaction to John, which is, you know, making categorical assertions of anything is, is, a, is a dangerous move to make. Um, I, was, I was struck by that, that phrase, you know, our children are devoid of all knowledge. I, you know, that was just, that's not something that my bosses, any of the people I've ever worked for would ever um, allow to be written. But, you know, I, what, what is chilling about it actually is that his suggestion of American carnage um, was really just more prophecy than and prediction uh, than it was an ac- accurate picture of what was happening at the time. I mean, he had just inherited a growing economy from President Obama, and the economic growth that continued under him had started before him. Um, and he was painting sort of a false picture of what was happening. But the, the phrase, in particular, "American carnage," is is sort of haunting, considering what he unleashed, you know, just a few days ago at the Capitol. Um, it is a it is a striking comparison if you, you know, side by side, if you put the two pictures together. And, um, you know, I think somebody who speaks in such absolutes um, and, you know, who at the convention that said, I alone can fix it, um, is probably not going to be the kind of leader who's going to offer a affirmative uh, forward-looking vision that it that brings along all Americans um, and leads us to a better place. Well, you both have been terrific looking back in history for us on past presidential inaugurals. We have uh, about two minutes left. I'm going to ask each of you to close almost where we began. If you were working with incoming President Joe Biden on his inaugural address at this point, what would your best advice to him be? Sarada, let's start with you. My advice to him would be 
my advice to anybody um, who is giving a speech, which is, you know, what is the one true thing that you can say and to speak to this particular moment in the most honest way that you possibly can. And John McConnell, your advice? Take yes for an answer. You are president of the United States. The campaign is over. Uh, The country uh, uh, is looking to you with great expectations, great goodwill. Uh, This is not a country obsessed with politics. Uh, This is a country that has a lot of problems and, and, uh, uh, you know, a nasty tone in its politics. Uh, None of that has to be reflected in the inaugural address. You are the president. Look forward. Look ahead. Tell the country where you want to go, what you want to do. Uh, It's not about your adversaries. It's not about who you defeated. It's, It's about you and this is probably, uh, you're probably not going to run for office again. So just be every inch the president of the United States. But he doesn't need my advice. <laughs> Sarah DePerry, John McConnell, both former presidential speechwriters, thank you so much for spending an hour with C-SPAN in advance of Joe Biden's inaugural. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast, so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.